Follow along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And I charge you by the Lord that this epistle may be, uh, would be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Father, we pray that as we've heard your word spoken, that you would open our eyes to understand your word as we look at it together. We pray your Holy Spirit would teach us, and we pray your Holy Spirit would change us, that we would continue to grow as a healthy church for our good, for your glory, and Lord, that we might reach more people with your love. We pray you'd help us to do this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So I had originally intended to teach from verse 12 all the way through the end of the chapter in one setting today. It, it really does all go together, because what Paul's doing is, is he's giving a final exhortation in this, his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. He's giving them a final exhortation about what church life should look like. What does it look like? What does a local congregation look like? He's wanting to give them exhortations about what makes these things healthy. And I think it's really important that we see, is we're going to talk about two things, one this week, one next week. This week we're going to talk about healthy relationships in a local church. Next week we're going to talk about the work of the Spirit in a healthy church. And the reason I wanted to do it in one is because it's easy to emphasize one and neglect the other. And we want to see that these things come together. These things are meant to be together. We need a supernatural work of God's Spirit so that we can have healthy relationships in the church. And we're not having healthy relationships in the church if we're not open to a supernatural work of the Spirit. So these two things go together. And so we're going to talk, uh, because there's, there's so much here and because there's so much misunderstanding about some of these things, we wanted to do this in two weeks. So I, I read it all together so we could see it's all together, and we're going to read it all together next week. But let's just this week focus on relationships. Because the truth is the church is defined by how we relate to one another. And that's not just kind of a catchy phrase that I'm kind of using to start my message. It's a fact. Jesus said... In John 13, right, he said, the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. That how we treat each other, how we relate to each other, will actually identify 
us as Jesus' disciples. And so what we have here in these first few verses of this section is we have Paul wanting to say, here's some practical guidelines of how you're to relate to each other. What what those relationships look like. Now, there's three kind of categories here. The first one is really how do we relate to leaders? And I have to say, I feel weird talking about this. This is one of those times when you think, okay, we're going to talk about how you guys relate to us and leadership. I wish somebody else would talk about this so it wouldn't be me. But it's, it's, it's important that you guys see this. It's important that we understand that part of having a healthy church is having a healthy honor for those in leadership. And what does that look like? So going back to verse 12, let's first and foremost recognize the job description of leaders. In verse 12, Paul says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who, notice the first thing, who labor among you. Those who labor among you. It's important that we see that that leadership, listen, leadership is not recognized by their position, but by their actions. The way we identify those who lead are by, by the fact of what they do. In fact, really, people that are put into a position, who have a position of authority or responsibility among God's people, they're done so, or at least they should be, in that place because they were already taking that initiative. Now, there, I understand sometimes this is a little bit tricky because when you guys all came to church, you couldn't say, yeah, we think John should be the leader because I already was. Because <laughs> I was sent by a group of churches in America to plant this church first. So you couldn't say, yes, he's the guy that's supposed to lead. I already had that position. Hopefully, though, and you guys are still here, so I'm hoping this is the case, you recognize, yeah, God has given me that gifting. There is The, the, the actions do back up the position. But it's really important we recognize Paul saying, recognize the actions of the leaders. Who's actually leading? Now, he doesn't say tons about what that leadership looks like in this section, but Paul in his teachings says a lot about what church leadership should look like. He says here, those who labor among you, and we want to know what's that laboring supposed to be? What kind of labor should they be doing? Listen to this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, when Paul's talking about church leaders and the qualification of church leaders, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. In other words, church leaders, they labor by directing the church, by preaching the the gospel to the church, and by teaching the truth to the church. This is what our labor does. We see this talked about in, one, in Acts chapter 6. You remember when the apostles were, were, were preaching in Jerusalem, the church was growing like crazy. I mean, they were, they were in the thousands in a really short amount of time. And one of the things they were doing was making sure that they could take care of the, the, the practical material needs of members of the congregation. But they got, they got so busy, they said, look, this has got to stop. They said, you guys need to pick seven men among you who can wait on tables, who can deliver this food to the people that are in need, and we need to make sure that we're not neglecting prayer and the Word of God. In other words, their responsibility as the leaders of the first church was to make sure that the truth was being explained and that the church was moving in a direction so that people could receive the truth, could grow in the truth, and know the truth. So that's, that's my primary responsibility, is to teach. Now, that doesn't just mean doing pulpit ministry. 
In fact, I want to make sure that you understand this because I'm not the only leader in this church. There's a team of us that share leadership. And so when it comes to directing the church, uh, I may be the one who's responsible for vision and direction, but we only make decisions together. I I pray, I seek the Lord, Lord, how do you want us to move forward? Are we moving towards making disciples that make disciples? What is that supposed to look like? And talk to the other team members about that, and we decide these things together before the Lord. When it comes to preaching and teaching, yes, I might do the bulk of the pulpit ministry, but there are several men who teach, not just from the pulpit, but to the house groups. These guys are laboring in preaching and teaching. And so we we also have deacons that help direct. So so when it comes to the direction of the children's ministry, I may have a say-so in that. I may suggest things to Sarah and Naomi who are doing that together. But really, it's them who says, okay, how do we make this happen? And the reason I'm saying all this is because Paul is saying it's really important that we recognize that part of leadership, in fact, the the defining part of leadership is labor. It's work. And this is really important because one of the things that's happened uh, over the years as, as we've planted this church, as I've been involved in church planting, is I've seen people, and I'll be honest, usually it's men, but I've seen people who desire a position but don't desire the responsibility attached to it. And so this is why we tend to, to, especially at servants, we tend to look for men who are willing to take responsibility for something. They're willing to say, yes, I'll make sure this gets done. I'll make sure that need gets met. I'll make sure those people get, get prayed with or talked to or whatever the case might be. And as they labor, we recognize that's a leader. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what I think Paul's getting at. He's saying you need to recognize what these guys do. They don't just direct, preach, and teach, though. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13. He says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the, the, the outcome of their faith, uh, of their way of life, excuse me, and imitate their faith. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That is an account to God. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, look, the leaders, they do teach your, the, the word to you. They have an oversight o- over you, but that doesn't mean they control your life. It means they're accountable to God for your souls. One of the things that is, is tempting, especially if, if from, a, from a perspective of doing pulpit ministry, one of the things that's tempting is to teach in such a way that makes people happy. And I mean this. I'm being really honest. It's tempting to go, okay, am I entertaining enough? Am I holding their attention enough? Do they like what I have to say? There is that temptation. The, thing, the reason I don't submit to that temptation or don't come into that temptation so often is because when I stand before God, He's not going to say, gee, John, you were quite funny. Your bald jokes always got to laugh. Good job. No, He's going to say, did you care for their souls? Did you love them? Did you warn them? Did you instruct them that they know what it, what it means to follow me? This is our responsibility. Now, because of that, sometimes people don't, they don't like what we do. Recently, we, we talked about a very difficult subject in 1 Thessalonians about sanctified sexuality. We, we, 
we, in, that, in that conversation, in that study, we talked about uh, the reality that, that, that God in His Word is very clear about what His standard is for human sexuality. And, and, I, and I do have a clear conscience that I taught that with compassion and understanding, but it was hard for people to hear. People were basically mad and didn't want to come back to church. Now, the thing is, that grieves my heart, and, and I don't think it's ever over for anybody when these things happen. God knows what He's doing. But the reality is, I have to say what God wants me to say because I'm more concerned about people's souls, I'm more concerned about people's, your souls, than in about what you think of me. Now, this, this comes into something else because it's interesting uh, one of the things that Paul had to do, especially when he was writing to the Corinthian church and ministering to the believers in Corinth, he was constantly have to defend his position. And they really, they, they really you know, it's funny because Paul started that church and they didn't always really like Paul. And he wrote a letter to them one time that was really cutting and it was a difficult thing. And he, he writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's probably a letter, he's probably referring to a letter that he wrote between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And here's, here's what he writes. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, because I see that my letter hurt you. But only for a little while. Yet now I am happy because, because you were made sorry. Not, I'm sorry, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance or change. For you became sorrowful as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. Can, can you see Paul's heart in that? He wasn't like glorying that they were grieved by the heaviness of his letter. I don't get happy when you guys are like, oh man, that was hard to hear. It's not like I'm going, yes, take that and take that. I, I don't want you guys to be injured, but I'd rather you be wounded and turn to God and trust God than just feel good and be lost. The Proverbs talk about faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So, so, so the reason I'm sharing all this, again, is, is I, I, again, I feel awkward doing this because I feel like I'm petting myself on the back. That's not the intention. The intention is trying to set, this is the standard for church leadership that Paul's setting. He's saying the standard is that we are people that, 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 that leaders are those who are laboring in making sure the church is moving forward as disciples. They're laboring in the teaching of God's truth, in the preaching of God's gospel. This is what we're called to do. Why? Because Jesus said that truth sets free as painful as it is to our egos, to our own human morality, to our own sense of independence it's needful for us if we're going to be right with God. So Paul says, recognize their job descriptions, really. He wants us to recognize leaders and what they're actually called to do. Notice there's no here, nothing in here, a command about being entertaining, about fundraising, about all the things that pastors in the Western church culture feel they have to do. I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's not that easy to be a pastor. I mean, I'm not tooting my horn. I'm just saying this is, this is a reality. You need to understand something. You know, there are, uh, the, I, I've been in circumstances where I, I'm teaching a Bible study and the people I'm teaching the Bible study to have actually listened to famous preachers teach the same thing before they listen to me. So they're comparing me to these famous guys who are in these massive churches who, are, who basically get paid to only teach. They don't have all the other responsibilities that smaller church pastors have. 
who probably spent 20 or 30 hours preparing a study where I only maybe have four hours for a midweek study. And, and they're like, well, okay, but so-and-so said this. Okay, but so-and-so said this. That's not easy. Now, I, I'm all for people calling me on what the text says. I'm all for that. But having to defend my interpretation against somebody else's interpretation or having to, 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 to know that this person is like, well, they were actually funnier or more entertaining or easier to listen to than you. And that's hard. And if you think it's hard for me, how hard is it for the guys who only get to do this every once in a while? It's a difficult thing. See, the job description is not about tickling your ears. In fact, we're warned that that's what false prophets do. Our job description is about giving you truth because it sets you free. So Paul says, recognize these guys. In fact, Paul's really clear. He says, listen, it's interesting. In verse 13, uh, how, how he says this, he says, look, I want you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And I want to just say before I say anything else, I totally feel loved by you guys at Servants Church. Totally. I don't feel unappreciated at all. There's been seasons where I wanted to strangle people, I'll be honest. But it, we're, we're not in that season now. I'm so blessed. I, seriously, I'm so blessed uh, to, to pastor you guys. My job, I feel like my job's easy sometimes, really. So I just want to say thank you. I don't feel unappreciated or unloved at all. But there are many guys who do. I read a story not too long ago about, uh, or heard a story actually not too long ago about a pastor in um, the States who had never had demonstrated any kind of um, mental health problems. He obviously had mental health problems, but he hadn't really demonstrated any of those. But he committed suicide. And one of the things that, that came out was that the church had been hounding him and hounding him and hounding him for years because it was a congregational-run churches. That was their church government. The congregation voted on who the church uh, pastor was, voted on what the church should do. So basically, he worked for all of them. And it got him to a point where after several years, he felt alone, and he couldn't deal with it again, and he committed suicide. That's one of the reasons for not a congregational church, by the way. <laughs> so we want to hear what you guys have to say, but it's the leadership that makes the decisions about things. It's not always easy to do this. And Paul's saying, listen, a healthy church has to honor their leaders for their work. In fact, what does he say at the end of verse 13? He says, and be at peace among yourselves. Now, we don't know for sure what was going on in the Thessalonian church that he should write this, but it sounds similar to what happened in the Corinthian church. Paul talks about leadership in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about some of the divisions that were there. He says, you know, you, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other and doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? He says, aren't you living like people of the world? And here's how their carnality and their division showed. One, one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul. Another says, I'm a follower of Apollos. Aren't you acting just like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seeds in your heart, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It could be that what was happening here was the same kind of happening in Thessalonica, was the same kind of stuff happening in Corinth, where people were going, you know, we, we liked Paul and Timothy, we were here, but these guys have taken their place, they're not that great. 
I, I really, I liked Paul. I really, I really liked Timothy. I That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what we want is we, we, we love Jesus and we love His Word. That's what we want. And so Paul's saying this is not what you need to do. Love their work, the work of leaders, not their personalities. Love their work, not their personalities. Love that they're speaking truth to you. I was talking to, uh, it was actually Clayton. Talking to Clayton Green about this, this, this topic years ago. We were talking about this. And he was telling me about this pastor he knew who was, he said, in the group of churches that he was involved in, he said, this pastor was like so boring. He would speak sometimes at conferences. It was just like, oh, he's so boring. But his church was bigger than most people's churches in the district. Because the truth was, even though he wasn't entertaining, he was anointed. He spoke God's word by God's spirit, and it impacted God's people. Just because somebody's entertaining or easy to listen to doesn't mean that that's actually what God's using. God's not using their personality. God's using his word to change people's lives. So, honoring leaders for their work, that's a really important for a healthy relationship. But also notice, verses 14 and 15, here's the second thing. We need to be serving individuals for the good of all. Notice, notice Paul kind of names different people, and, and this really shows us we need to minister to people as, as they need, where they're at. And he's not categorizing people, he's talking about people who are in a different phase on the week that they're there, basically. He says, now we exhort you, brethren. So again, this is how we are to minister one to another. He says, I exhort you, brethren. Here's the first group. He says, I want you to warn those who are unruly. Now, we mentioned these guys earlier in Thessalonians. These are probably people who, who were, the word means disorderly or idle. It's the idea that they're probably people who thought, hey, Jesus is going to come back. I don't really need to work. There's some rich people in the congregation. They can kind of take care of me, and I'll just kind of walk around and tell people about Jesus. We're going to unpack that attitude later on in 2 Thessalonians. But, but know this. It's people who basically, you might say, are irresponsible. They're, they're not carrying their own load. And Paul says, here's the deal. Those who are irresponsible or those who are refusing to obey what God says about these things, they need to be warned. Now, this is important. Part of us loving each other is warning each other when we're going off base. When we're doing something that we know we should not be doing. It's, we, we need to be sober about the consequences of our actions and we need to love each other enough to say, hey man, that's, not, that's definitely not what the Lord wants you to do. I'm not talking about freedom issues. I'm not talking about stuff where, you know, it's a matter of conscience whether we're involved in it or not. I'm talking about stuff that's black and white that every believer should be involved in or shouldn't be involved in. We need to call each other on this. Next group of people, he says, in verse 14, he says, comfort the faint-hearted. Now, in this context, the faint-hearted probably refers to those because there are many in Thessalonica who were experiencing serious persecution. So it's probably referring to those who have been persecuted for their faith and they're just going, man, I just want to give up. It's just too hard. It's just too hard to be a Christian. Paul says we need to comfort those people, the people that are just feeling really marginalized, pushed to the corners, persecuted for their faith in Jesus. We need to comfort those people. They need an arm around them saying, hey, we're here with you. We're suffering with you. Another group he talks about. He says, uh, uphold the weak. And in this context, it's probably referring to somebody who's struggling just to walk with God. 
They're just really, it's difficult just to walk with God on a daily basis. And they're, you, you, you see that or you hear of that. They share that with you and you're thinking, you know what? They're really just struggling just to walk with Jesus. What do we need to do? We need to hold, uphold them. We need to kind of support them and say, come on, let's walk together. Now, now it's important that we recognize, it sounds like probably all common sense to you, but it's important to recognize he doesn't say, I want you to warn those who are persecuted. What would happen if someone's going, man, this is so hard, I don't know if I can make it, and we're like, yeah, you better suffer for Jesus or you're not really saved. That's probably the wrong thing to say, isn't it? Or what about the person who is just refusing or just is struggling to walk with Jesus just to go, oh man, we know it's hard. Hope you do better. Is that the right thing for them? If someone can't walk, you need to help them walk. The, the, Paul talked about it this way, that this principle of meeting people where they're at this way in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those that weep. The whole reason, in case you didn't know this, the whole reason we have a 15 or 20 minute break between worship in the music and worship in the word is so that we can declare God's worthiness, we can worship through loving each other, and that means meeting people where they're at. How's your week been? Oh, it's been a really good week. God's really speaking. He's really meeting me there, and you might be thinking, man, I'm not feeling that. So, you know, so, so what do you do? Do you say, well, I don't have that. No, you go, that's great. Or maybe they're going, hey, it's great. We've been praying for God to provide a car and that we found the right car at the right price. We're praising God. And you're thinking, Poche had a better car. No, that's the wrong way. You should be rejoicing with those that rejoice. Do you see what I'm saying? And the same with, with weeping. Maybe you've had a tremendous week. God's been blessing you and you meet somebody and you talk to them and their week's been rubbish. You don't go, oh, that's a bummer. My week was great. They're grieving because their kids are walking away from Jesus, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's really hard. My kids really love Jesus. I'm so excited about it. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so the principle that he's saying is we need to be serving individuals, seeing people where they're at. This is how we walk in love. This is healthy church life. But also, look at the last part of verse 14 and verse 15. I want you to notice a couple things, he says. Be patient with all. Be patient with all. In other words, we need to remember as we're dealing with people that we're all in process. It is hard. It's hard at times when you're trying to help somebody who's struggling to walk. You're wanting to uphold the weak and you're thinking, is this person ever going to learn to walk? We have those thoughts. It can be that way. And you're thinking, are they ever going to move past this issue? And it's easy to lose your patience. But we need to remember, guess what? We're all in process. Maybe you're doing well in an area that they're not doing so well, and so you're able to uphold them, but maybe you need to be upheld in something else. We're all in process. He says in the first part of verse 15, he says, um, where is it? I lost my place. There it is. He says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Now, it's funny that he would have to say this to Christians, but remember in the first century culture, especially the Greek culture, the Greek and Roman culture was a culture where vengeance was part of the way that justice was served. As somebody dishonored your family, you dishonored them to kind of level the playing field. But we are not people like that anymore, are we? God calls us to walk in mercy. In fact, God calls us to show mercy because we know how much we need 
mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He's not saying that we're earning mercy by showing mercy. He's saying recognize how much you need mercy and how much mercy God's willing to show you and let that be the motivation to show mercy to them. We need to be, show mercy to each other. Do you know how most church splits happen? Do you know why most church, when churches fall apart, why they fall apart? It's almost, it's rarely because of doctrine or teaching. It's usually because of unforgiveness. Somebody got their feelings hurt and they didn't want to forgive somebody else. How come they didn't ask me to pick the color of the walls? I, I know about interior decorating, they didn't ask me, and they're hurt. How come I wasn't asked to be in that position? I've been in this church longer, and they're hurt. Rather than forgiving, they hold a grudge. And sometimes what happens is, people do actually do things to us that are wrong. We get snubbed, or ignored, or blamed for something that we haven't done, or judged, or people just don't show us patience when we're having a hard day. And we think, man, you know what, forget these people. But that's rendering evil for evil. And Paul says, no, a healthy church can't do that. We've got to show mercy to each other. We're going to hurt each other, but we've got to show mercy to each other. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 15. He says, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Now there's a, a philosophical idea called utilitarianism. And what that is, is this idea that uh, good is what brings the most benefit to the most amount of people, which sounds like it makes sense, doesn't it? Except for it doesn't, uh, it doesn't help us define what's good or what's, what's a benefit to people. So we need to make sure that we understand that Paul's not saying, he's not teaching utilitarianism. He's not saying just do whatever works best for everybody. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we need to prioritize what best demonstrates God's goodness. See, sometimes what's good is for many people to suffer and sacrifice for a few. Sometimes that's what's good. It demonstrates God's goodness. Sometimes what's good is for us to not have our own needs met so that somebody else has their needs met. Now, as we talk about these things, I don't know about you, but I know when I was preparing this, I kept thinking of, but man, there's, I can think of a million scenarios where I'm not sure what I should do. Do you, do you feel that? Do you hear this and go, yeah, that's a good principle, but I have no idea how to live this out in real life? This is why what we're going to talk about next week is so important, about not quenching the Spirit, about allowing God's Holy Spirit to lead us as individuals to individuals. We really need that present, continual work of God's Spirit in our life. Or we can't do this. We can't love the way God's calling us to love this way. Interesting, too, we're talking about what's best. Sometimes what's best is for us as God's people to do what's good for those who aren't God's people. I was challenged, I've been challenged for several weeks about this young, young boy, Harry, who has cancer. Harry Deba. You might have seen this stuff on Facebook. Not a Christian family but there, there's a real need for, for this young man. And, and I'll be honest, I, I've been thinking I should give and then thinking, nah, nah, nah. I, I want to spend my money on gospel stuff. And so I pushed it away and I pushed it away and I pushed it away. And yesterday, finally, 
God reminded me as I was preparing, well, isn't Galatians say this? Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now listen, we can't meet every need. There's no way. But we should be thinking about how can we demonstrate God's goodness? As God's people, how can we demonstrate God's goodness to each other especially, but to anyone that we possibly can help? See, the truth is we need to be patient with everyone's progress because we're all trying to figure out how to do this. But we should be pursuing this because this is what a healthy church pursues. Again, can I commend you guys? Because I really don't want you guys to walk away going, oh, we're so lousy. Because to be honest, I see a lot of this happening at servants. But we can grow more, can't we? We should want more, shouldn't we? So healthy relationships in church means we honor leaders for their work, we serve individuals for the good of all, and lastly, listen, we submit ourselves to God's will. See, healthy relationships is, is also about us relating to God. It's not just the horizontal, it is the vertical. In fact, without the vertical, the horizontal isn't going to happen. Listen to what Paul says. Three phrases, really simple phrases, not a lot of words, in the English version, there are five, six, seven, eight words in these commands. First one, rejoice always. Now, it seems a bit trite, doesn't it? Especially when we're, when we're thinking about the fact that we need to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Doesn't that mean we can't rejoice always? Well, what he's talking about here is not always have a stupid smile on your face. He's not talking about that, okay? That's not what he means. What he means is, is, that, uh, is that, that we need to see that it's God's will for us to see things from his perspective. You see, joy is not about your circumstances. Happiness is, but joy isn't. Joy is not about your circumstances. Joy is about God's perspective. It's about seeing things the way God sees them. Let me give you some examples of how we're called to rejoice, some of the circumstances. Listen to this. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.5. He says, In this incorruptible and undefiled inheritance, he's talking about what we have in Jesus that we're going to receive an inheritance in him. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, for though now for a little while, if need be, you are, have been grieved by various trials. In other words, you're in serious, tough times where you're grieving, and yet we still at the same time rejoice. So the scripture says we can rejoice even in seasons of grief. In other words, when we're going through difficult times, we don't have to say, it's good, it's all good, it's all good. Yeah, my wife's really sick, but it doesn't matter, it's all good. No, that's not what we're talking about. He says we might be grieved by these trials, but we can still find joy in our promised inheritance. This is what Jesus says in, John, in Matthew chapter 5. The Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is reward in heaven, for, they, uh, so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can be being persecuted and still have joy. Because we know this is what God says we're going to go through because we're wanting to be faithful to Him. 
Again, listen to Jesus. Jesus speaking to his disciples whom he had just sent out to um, basically preach the gospel, to cast out demons. Is anybody here? Well, no, I'm not going to ask. If you've ever had a chance to deal with anything demonic, you know it's really heavy. And if you've ever cast out a demon, I never have had an opportunity to cast out a demon, but if you ever cast out a demon, I'm sure it's like a pretty crazy experience. These guys got sent out and they're casting out demons. And Jesus says this to them, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the evil spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, I can imagine when Jesus said that to them, they're going, but you should have seen. We rebuke them in your name, and these, oh, it's just crazy. If you had that kind of a huge supernatural experience, the temptation would be like, this is it. This is power. This is amazing. And Jesus is saying, no. What you, you need joy in is the fact that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that God says, I've given you a citizenship there. So this little command, and it is a command in verse 16 to rejoice always. It's not saying, hey, always put on a stupid smile. It's no. It's know that there's a joy in knowing Jesus. This is why Paul says it in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Guys, listen. This is about us submitting ourselves to God's will. This is what he says, isn't it, in, in, the, in, the, in the end of verse 18? It's not just about thanksgiving, but a bit, again, about all these things listed. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is what God wants for you. So what do we need to do? We need to say, okay, Lord, I want that. I want a joy that's bigger than my circumstances. I want that. I want to be able to rejoice in you when things are difficult. And I want that for me, but I want that for my brothers and sisters. I want that for them as well. Rejoice always. Next command, listen. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that you're always muttering under your breath, dear Lord Jesus, I just... It doesn't mean that like, everything always has to stop and you're on your knees and you're praying. It doesn't mean that. It means never stop praying. Think about this. If it means never stop praying, why would Paul have to say that? Because we're tempted to stop praying. Because sometimes we think, is it really doing any good? Is God really changing me or anyone else through this prayer? Now we know that he is. Listen to this. When Jesus talks about prayer, he makes it clear it's not about how good we sound or having the right words. It is about us recognizing that God is there for us. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, <clears throat> when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and the synagogues where everyone can see them. In other words, don't let your motivation for prayer being, look at me, everyone, I'm so spiritual. He says, I tell you the truth, that, <laughs> that is all the reward they'll ever get. But your Father who sees everything will reward you. So he says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think that their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Guys, the command to pray without ceasing is not about get your words right, make your words many, make your words sound good to other people. That's not what prayer is about. It's about us drawing near to our Father. <coughs> In fact, sometimes we don't even know what to say. 
In fact, Paul says this, again, speaking of the work of the Spirit in our lives, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Ever been so burdened and you knew you wanted to give those burdens to God, but you didn't know how to put them into words? You ever felt that way? I have. I sit in this one spot in my lounge in the mornings when I have my time with the Lord, and sometimes my mind starts spinning and I'm thinking of stuff and I'm just like, Father, I, I just, and I just, I can't articulate anything. But you know what the promise is? That even though my heart is just groaning, God's interpreting those groans by His Holy Spirit so He knows exactly what I need. You know, and this is really cool too because this kind of idea of never stop praying, always knowing God's available, this means we can tell God anything. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to be disrespectful for God, and that's a good thing. We we should reverence the Lord, but guess what? God knows when your heart isn't reverent. And sometimes what you need to do is verbalize that so that you can actually repent of it. I mean, sometimes we don't really want to repent of that lack of reverence or that lack of fear of God, so we cover it up with religious words. But you know what the Bible says? Listen to this. The psalmist said, trust in the Lord at all times. That includes when you're not feeling like you really fear the Lord as you should. Trust in the Lord at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for our God is our refuge. See, this command, pray without ceasing, it's about us saying, God, I... I have, to, I have to turn to you in prayer. I have to cry out to you in prayer. I'm desperate for you. Don't you know that a healthy church requires people who are submitting themselves to God in this way? We can have healthy church services, but not have a healthy church if we're not as individuals saying, God, I want you for, for my own sake and for these people's sake and for your glory's sake. Now, the last command here is, in everything, give thanks. Now, we need to understand, thankfulness is not about what we have. I read uh, uh, a well-known preacher from a couple centuries ago. He was talking about giving thanks for food and stuff, and he talked about how uh, a time when his wife had cooked a meal, uh, the kind of meal that he absolutely loathed, but it was all that was left in the cupboard. And so he said, God, he's going to say grace, God, I can't give thanks for this food, but I can give thanks that I have food. (laughs) I don't think he was quite reaching what God wanted him to reach there, but I can relate. (laughs) Yeah, he was (laughs) desperately pouring out his heart, wasn't he? See, the idea here is not about what we have. It's not about, God, thank you because I have just what I want. No, it's good for us to give God thanks for the good stuff that we have, but we also thank God for the bad stuff that we have or the stuff that we don't have. And the reason we thank God for that is because God is in control, because God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, and because that's the facts, guess what? Whatever our circumstances are, whatever our possessions are, we can say, thank you, Father, you know what's best. When our hearts are like this, guess what? 
we're healthier as a church. Can you see how this is about us having to turn to the Lord, having to submit ourselves to his will? He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. This is what God wants for everyone who names the name of Christ. Every single believer, whether you've been a believer for one day or a hundred years, God's saying to you, listen, this is my will for you. This is what I want for your life. Submit yourself to these things. Learn to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. That's my will for you. As you submit to these things, you're building health in yourself and you're building health in God's people. You guys know this verse. Romans 8, 28, right? And all, we know that all things work for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He didn't say all things are good. He said all things work for good. Why can we thank God? Because he's in control. He's in control. And he's good. Isn't that good news? Next week, we're gonna talk about the Spirit's work. And I, I hope that as you see this, you say, Lord, we need this, but we can't do this without you because that's what next week's about. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be those that don't wait to walk in obedience, but Lord, we would step out in faith and say, Lord, help us to do this. We want to turn ourselves to you afresh and say, we want to rejoice in Jesus. We want to seek you, Father, because we need you and we know you're available to us. And Lord, we want to thank you even for the junk in our lives because Lord, somehow, somehow, you and your goodness are going to work that together for good. And Father, I pray that you, uh, I thank you, Lord, for servants being such a healthy church. I'm so thankful, Lord, for the work that you're doing in this church. Father, please continue. Lord, help us to bear much fruit for your glory. And Lord, if anyone's here who doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that they'd want to know you, that they'd be stirred by these things, that they themselves would think, that sounds like a good way to live, but see themselves as far from that, and know, Lord, that you and you alone can bring them into the life that you've created them for. Lord, do what needs to be done in each of our hearts, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen.